Well, my name is Chris. I don't want to forget that, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in the middle of a series on spiritual warfare, so I'm really excited about this time. And paired with this time, we also, uh, all the way through Easter, we're going to be having a special prayer time for revival at 5 p.m. up in Asia's Hope's office. You go up those steps or up those steps there all the way to the top. That's Asia's Hope's office. We pray every Sunday night, and we've done so for well over a year now at 5 p.m., and everybody's invited And we have a different emphasis, and our emphasis right now in this season is revival. So come to that time. It was great to see some people come out for the first time tonight. I do feel like it's the most important ministry of the church. It's the work of praying for God to do things that we know are according to his will. And if you lead out at this church and you're involved in ministry, you're being prayed for. The various outreaches outside of these walls that the church is involved in, we're praying for those every single week. And I believe we've seen God do some amazing things through that prayer time. And that's a message unto its own as well. But that's the important work of the church, to pray. The fruit, or rather the fruit is just going to pick it up. But the work is done and the ministry happens in prayer. And we're picking up what God has already done when we go out and do what he's called us to do. So I'd encourage you to take advantage. And we love kids there. We intentionally don't have childcare. We want them running around. Okay, because they're not a distraction. I highly doubt Jesus was telling little kids to shut up and be quiet. You know, he said, let them come to me. We want them to see you and us together praying. I intentionally even play around with the little kids when I get a little bit, you know, distracted and I need a break. I'll go out and just play with the little ones running around. So it's no big deal. For those of you who don't have kids, just get used to the distraction. We want them there. And even some of them, little Eli Huber told me today, he said, Chris, are you going to pray? And I said, yeah. And he said, you do it like this. I said, okay, thanks. I needed that. That's good. And he actually told me to stop playing with him and go pray. So that was a good challenge. Um, So starting off here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Lord, just as we prayed for the church in China, we understand there is a battle. There is a battle that we wake up to between good and evil every day, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we're passive or whether we aggressively fight against it and for and with Jesus Christ. Lord, we understand that to be passive is to admit loss and it's to wallow in defeat. And Lord, we thank you that We follow the resurrected Christ who is our victorious king and who calls us to victory and welcomes us into victory, and we celebrate that tonight and pray that you would help us to put on our hard hats and get to work learning how to break free from bondage and live by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let's do that together, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're commanded to be combative, spiritually speaking. We're not Being passive is not an option. We have a battle between the fruit of the Spirit and the natural inclinations of the flesh. That is those things that we naturally just want to do as human beings, and you know what I'm talking about. It's described, this war, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So we see here the nature of the battle between the flesh, that is our natural inclinations, and the Spirit. We're, an impossible, we're in an impossible battle that we can't possibly win on our own. We need special weapons given to us by God, and they're described in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says to the church at Corinth and to us, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we're told three things in these three passages that, uh, that I've selected here on spiritual warfare. First, we're commanded to stand to stand firm and put on the full armor of God, to fight. Second, we're told that in the flesh we cannot win. That is, it says specifically, we cannot do what we want regarding righteousness. And third, that the only way to win is to grab hold of these specially designed weapons designed by God to ensure our victory. So if you're drowning in porn, Stuck in selfishness, choked by insecurity, being pummeled in your battle for purity, obsessed with your appearance. I know a person who can break you out of captivity. That's the name of the game in this series that we're in. Freedom from spiritual bondage. We spoke last week of the nature of the battle, namely that it's deceptive, that the enemy presents the bait and then hides the hook. He shows us something appetizing, but then he hides the consequences and the distance from God and from others that sin causes. Tonight, we take a step into deeper waters at looking at one of our biggest keys to winning. I don't know about you, but I want to win. I don't want to just show up at church and show up at home group and go to prayer times and maybe check off my quiet time every now and again. I want to win. I want to walk in victory. I want to walk in power. I want to be uh, taking hold of the strength that God gives me to love people and change the world for Jesus Christ. And I know many of you do as well. And here's one of the keys, repentance. Repentance. Repentance is key to our battle. It's like uh, the supply line of food, medical supplies, and munitions to an army. Take, for example, the Revolutionary War. The reason why we're sitting in this room and enjoying freedom. Although the British had a larger and better trained army than the Americans, they had to transport soldiers and surprise, supplies across the Atlantic Ocean. George Washington, as well as other military leaders in the Continental Army, recognized that disrupting the flow of supplies to the British soldiers would destroy their ability to fight effectively. In the Carolinas, Major General Nathaniel Greene developed a strategy of harassing the British supply lines. He enlisted the help of local patriots like Francis Marion, also known as Swamp Fox, which is what I want you guys to start calling me. 
who led guerrilla-style raids on British supply lines. Marion concentrated his attacks on British supply camps and was able to cut the supply lines linking several British-occupied cities. During the war, General Washington also relied on a French fleet to establish a blockade in the Chesapeake Bay. This blockade cut off the supply line to General Lord Charles Cornwallis's British troops at Yorktown, Virginia. The British were cut off from rescue or resupply, while the Continental Army and their French allies benefited from plenty of troops and supplies. This led to the Battle of Yorktown, the sur surrender of Cornwallis's army, and the ultimate defeat of the British forces in America. So is repentance. It's the fuel we run on. It's food for our souls. It's the conduit through which spiritual weapons are delivered by God. So the enemy seeks to cut off the supply. Tonight, we'll first look at the importance of godly repentance in our walk with the Lord. It's indispensable. And then after that, we'll look at the fiery arrows or the tactics that the enemy uses to hinder our pursuit of repentance. So first, the nature and importance of repentance. So let's work to understand this important grace. Repentance is simply my definition here from Scripture, summarizing various Scriptures, converting or turning from evil actions and thoughts to godly actions and thoughts through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And more specifically, there are three parts to repentance. There are three parts. First, the act. Repentance is a verb. It's not just a concept. It's an action that we are to be engaged in daily. It turns or converts from evil to good. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing can, from, can, can come from the Lord. So it's not just about saying no to sin. It's about enjoying the Lord. To not repent is to fail to enjoy the Lord. There's no grace and forgiveness from God without turning from sin. Like a car cannot run without fuel and a human can't survive without water, so relationship to Jesus and the abundant life he provides can only come through God's provision of repentance. The second part is the subject. This is an easy one. The subject of repentance is us. It's human beings. It's people. We are the thing that's turned or converted from evil to Christ-likeness. We seek God to change, change us in the ways the prophet pleaded with his people to change. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, the prophet says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So repentance here says no to sin, clearly. Learn to do right. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. But then it also says yes to the greater good, which is loving Jesus more specifically, being his hands and feet, changing the lives of, of people. In, in this case here, the depressed and the fatherless and the widow. In short, repentance is not self-focused. It's God-focused and people-focused. Third, the terms by terms, we mean that this changing, turning from which into which both heart and life must be changed. We turn in our hearts from the power or state of sin to the power of God's grace and authority. 
our lives change from ones that are bound to the acts of sin, that is the acts of the flesh, to the acts of the spirit. And we read about what both of those are, a description of those a moment ago in Galatians 5. So that's repentance in a nutshell. It's not about simply feeling bad. As much as it is a supernatural act of God done in us to turn from sin, sin is simply a perversion of God, what God wanted for us all along, which is life and peace in Jesus, righteousness. Repentance is the medicine God uses to heal us of the sin sickness that is perverted what God wanted for us all along, a life of peace and rest and joy. So we'll learn more as we get into the specifics of the second part of the talk tonight. That's just to give us kind of a frame of, ref- frame of reference of what repentance is. Now I want to look at how the enemy tries to resist that, his fiery arrows or his strategies to get in the way. The first arrow is say no to all sin except for a select few. All these things I mentioned are ruining, if we engage in them, we're allowing Satan to ruin our relationship with Jesus not just affect it, ruin it. So Satan and his fallen angels try to make us content forsaking most sins, but keeping just a few pet sins, a few ones that we find especially delicious, you know, sins that we want to kind of keep in our back pocket and don't want to give up. We find ways to justify them. So maybe the bad language is turned from immediately at salvation and perhaps sex is reserved for marriage, and maybe patience is a virtue now, But a pet addiction could be too much entertainment, materialistic indulgence, or a host of many other things. The list is endless. To combat this enemy of the arrow, we need to be so careful because, man, this is dipped in a poison, so to speak, that that delivers a slow death where eventually we justify what we view as small sins, and over time, our heart becomes separated from God. We become half-hearted, apathetic, and lazy believers as we nurse these sins. To combat this deadly arrow, we must see the truth. And I'll say this too, that the more seasoned a believer we are, I think the more this arrow can hurt us because we can justify small things and our Christian faith becomes about a checkoff. Our hearts don't burn hot for Christ. We don't love him. We don't delight in him. And we don't want to make much of him. So to combat this, we need to look at the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the saint who fails to turn from every sin hasn't really turned from any sin. And let me define that. To say I'm going to keep some of these sins as my little pets year in and year out and water them and nurture them and they they grow in my life and I keep them hidden, to do that... uh, I'm not calling out, I'm not saying that we need to arrive at a state of perfection where there's no sin in our life. But if we're in a state where we are actively and knowingly sinning and not turning those things over for the Lord to the Lord and letting the Holy Spirit grow us and mature us and help us to conquer those sins, then our hearts will be separated from God. So our sinful actions might change. We might stop having premarital sex only to lust over possessions. Alcohol addiction might morph into an eating problem. Racism or gossip might cease only to obsess over your appearance or your social standing. We simply trade one sin stronghold for another when we're not totally surrendered. Jesus is not looking for those who are 90% in. He's looking for lives that are 110% 
surrendered to him. It doesn't mean perfection. It's the opposite. It means, Jesus, I don't just have a few sinful actions lurking around in my heart. I am a sinful person in need of a savior. I am in a constant state of neediness for you. And that's where strength is found. The enemy loves it when we have a hole in our armor that makes us vulnerable to this tactic. He fires this particular arrow at us and we think, why not indulge in this one little sin? Look at my track record in all these other areas, all these things that I've been doing well forever. And it's horrifically deadly to our souls because it's the sin of legalism. That is, we're self-righteous and smug about our acts of righteousness, but we strike out at the honor and glory and heart of Christ as we hold on to a few sins we're especially fond of. It hammers away at the joy of the Spirit and the peace of our consciences. We allow ourselves to attempt to find peace and rest in something apart from Christ while saying with our mouths and maybe even believing in our minds that we're totally surrendered to him. So our hearts become wholly separate from Christ, and we wonder why we struggle with apathy and indifference to God and his kingdom. We question why our prayers are not being answered and why we fail to experience any spiritual power to overcome sin and engage in ministry. The power comes from the grace of repentance. So a truly repentant believer strikes back at all sin, hates it all, and labors with the crucified Christ to crucify all sins and walks in the resurrected life with the resurrected Christ. In short, we declare revenge upon sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. This supernatural to pursue righteousness and flee from sin is beautifully depicted here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul describes to the Corinthian church the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And he says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So do you see the difference here that Paul notes between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow just cares that it got caught and wants to do a better job of hiding next time. Godly sorrow says, I am declaring war on this sin. I want to understand how I've hurt you. Brother, sister, I want you to teach me through God's word how to dominate and destroy this stronghold in my life. It's active. It's aggressive. See the verbiage used again. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. What eagerness, what uh, eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. It's where we hate, hate the sin in us. One of the best prayers we can pray is, Lord, help me to hate sin, to hate those things that you hate and to love those things that you love. The Christian who's not growing in a hatred for sin and growth in righteousness is at the very least stunted in their growth and may not be saved if there's no growth there ever. This is, this is a very serious thing. If we're not walking in regular repentance, man, we're in dangerous waters. 
Are you and I growing in our zealous obedience of God? Are we more loving to those in the church, sacrificing our time to help them? Are we growing in our love for the lost? Are we becoming more wholly discontent with injustice and racism and oppression? Are we developing an ever-growing passion for moral and mental purity? Is our love for God's word growing? Is our love for worship growing? Is our identity becoming more tightly tethered to who Jesus says we are instead of what Hollywood, social media, and our emotions tell us? I could go on, but for time's sake, I want to move on to the second. The second arrow is, again, the lie from the enemy. Repentance is saying no to every pleasure. Repentance is saying no to every pleasure. This one's a little more straightforward than the last because we all face it every day in some form or fashion. This arrow is squarely aimed at us when we're tempted to think that Jesus is just a big old cosmic killjoy, that he's here to take away all our joy, all our fun, and that he just wants us to be some type of stoic with a frown plastered on our face. God is going to steal our pleasure. It paints Jesus to be some kind of overly stern teacher. It makes the Bible out to be an archaic, confusing, and a nonsensical book, and it masks purity in prudish paint. But our defense is plain. Sin is not pleasure. It's ice cream with arsenic and rat poison mixed in. Sin never works. With thousands of players, it's maintained a zero batting average since its inception millennia ago. Repentance is saying yes to Jesus, the ultimate highest pleasure and delight. It loves what's good and fruitful instead of what's worthless because Jesus is the founder and the author of joy. It was he whose first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding to say that his kingdom is first and foremost a kingdom of what? Joy. No. A kingdom of what? A kingdom of what? It's joy, but I want a little more enthusiasm. A kingdom of what? There we go. That's, yeah, I was a little confusing there. You thought you had the wrong answer, didn't you? Right answer, not enough excitement. And here's where the deception lies in this arrow. This arrow from hell tells us that following Jesus is all about simply avoiding sin. And man, that's a lie. It's almost like, get this nasty stuff behind me so that I can enjoy the feast, so that I can walk into the mansion, so that I can experience life it is always meant to be. Repentance replaces sin with righteousness. It doesn't simply erase sin without putting something monumentally better in its place. See, it's not enough for the tree to simply avoid bearing bad fruit. Our lives must act out righteousness. We're to become like Jesus, the joy giver, who says this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. True believers act like Jesus more and more the longer they follow him. Those who simply avoid obvious outward sins may not even be saved. Jesus speaks about this again when he addresses his fellow Jews with an illustration illustration about who will and who will not inherit eternal life. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So notice that Jesus said that those who are deplorable in his sight are not just those who actively sin in ways that are, that are clearly identifiable. Passive opting out of serving spiritually and physically broken people means that someone is likely not a Christ follower and therefore will not inherit eternal life. To not serve the spiritually and physically broken is not to serve Jesus. To neglect the Great Commission, that is sharing Jesus with people who don't know him and then those who receive the gift of salvation, we teach them how to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, which is to love God, God and man through our sentiments, but also through our actions. If we're neglecting passively the great commission and the great commandment, it's nothing but passive indifference to God, and it's not categorically different from outright hatred for God as the results are the same, eternity without the Lord. There will be many church-going folk who do a lot of good stuff but never grow in their outward focus because they're not really saved. They don't have the gift of salvation. And I say this in all compassion and desperation. If you've never had a heart for God and people, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Tonight by being the night where you say, hey, I, I've been pretending. I didn't know I was pretending, but I am. And I, I, I need to, tonight, give my life to Jesus. There will be model Christians by some standards to whom Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, when they see him face to face because they're not genuine Christians. And likewise, there'll be many who seem barely saved in their actions because of the frequency of their stumbles and the nature of their past and the obstacles that they're facing that Jesus will embrace because their hearts have been changed to love God and love people. The next arrow is equally as easy to describe but also just as brutally deceptive as the one we just covered. The next arrow is repentance is just a one-time act. Yes, there is a first-time repentance. When we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of repentance to turn from our sin and turn from God, but it doesn't end there. Okay, it's not just a, uh, you know, it's not just a uh, quick shot where we slug it down and it's over. It's a sea that we're to swim in throughout our entire lives. In fact, the longer we follow Christ, the more we should repent. Not the less, not, not less. The reason is that while we sin less, the longer we follow Jesus and walk in trust and obedience, we see the deceitfulness of sin more clearly because of God growing us in our righteousness, and our broken and depraved desire to put self first is more evident to us. Just look at Paul, who God used as a mouthpiece to give us most of the New Testament. Paul the Apostle. I mean, he had his act together, didn't he? Listen to what he says in Romans 7, 24 about his repentance. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The mark of a mature and humble saint is they repent often. They know they're full of you know what. 
that that is their state, and they need for God to constantly bring them back to a state of revival. That is a fresh heart, fresh love, and fresh commitment to him. The mature saint says that they're done striving and pretending that they're good and that they pretty much have everything behind them. And right now, they're just kind of smooth sailing through their faith until Jesus comes back. No, the mature saints I know are very aware of their brokenness. Now, they're walking in victory. They are walking in victory, but they know that our sinfulness is not just about our actions. It's a condition in us where we live in a constant state of repentance. Lord, I agree with you that I can't do life on my own. I can't do ministry on my own. I can't do any of these things on my own. And I repent of these, the ways in which I try to do it on my own and justify myself by my own actions. The last arrow we're going to expose tonight is one that I think most of us have probably been struck by, and that is, it's too difficult and costly to repent, so I might as well continue in my sin. This arrow has taken out many Christ followers, isn't it? Haven't you heard people say, man, I've just, I'm too far gone. My conscience is too seared. I've tried and failed time and time again. The enemy says, why don't you just give up? Getting back on the horse is just too difficult. Just give in. Think how many times you've tried to leave this sin. Just give up. You can't win. The reason why this arrow works or this lie works is because there's a kernel of truth to it, isn't there? I mean, we can't repent on our own. Converting a sinful person to want to serve and love God is more glorious than creating a world. <laughs> I mean, it really is a work that Jesus has to do in us. We can't do it on our own. And certain sin, sins seem precious to us, don't they? Like Smeagol's ring of power that he wanted more than life itself to the point that it dehumanized him and made him a monster. And some sins have such a hold on us that we can't imagine life without them. Even though they make our soul ugly and diseased. But though they're precious to us, we can cut them out. By the power of the Spirit, we can. Just look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I was preaching from this text years ago to high school students as a youth pastor, and there was a kid who actually thought I was, you know, advising these students to take a spoon and, you know, gouge out their eyeball. That's not what Jesus is saying here. This is figurative. Uh, I have to say that because evidently only 30% of adults reach abstract thinking. That's a fact. So that's why I have to tell you that. But you guys are the elite, so I know none of you thought that was literal. But the point is, the eye is a precious instrument, isn't it? None of us want to live without our eyesight. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very, my wife will tell you this, and my kids, I'm very self-conscious when they're doing stuff around my eyes. Okay, like when Becky has cut my hair for years, and uh, when she has the scissors out, she is a very bubbly person. The way she acts around you is the way she is 24-7. She knows two speeds, happy, bubbly, and awake, or sleeping. That's it. So it's the same when she's cutting my hair. And she's cutting my hair, and we're watching the news or something, and she's laughing, talking about her day, and these scissors are just, ha, 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 ha. Ah, that big, beautiful smile, and I'm going, Phew. 
I'm very paranoid and protective about my eyes. All right, or if I'm playing basketball with my boys or something, I'm very self-conscious about them hitting me, you know, fingering me in the eyeball. Um, so our eyes are precious to us, and some of our sins may seem just as precious. I don't want to give it away. And you know, again, especially sometimes it's obvious the sins we don't want to give away, but sometimes it's not like the thing is that bad, but we know it's turning down the temperature of our hearts for the Lord. It's something that's not bad, but it's not helping us grow closer to Jesus. And we've heard the Spirit tell us hundreds of times, just give it up. And we say, but this, I just don't know. Lord, I don't, if I give this one up, it's, it's precious to me. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says we have to cut it out. But you know what I've found in my life? Those, those pet sins that I've had when I've given them to the Lord, it takes about 56 seconds for me to think, I am so glad I did that. I'm so glad that I took hold of that grace that God gave me. He is so, Jesus is so much better. And then I get back on the Ferris wheel and I might struggle with it again a little bit and then give it back to the Lord. These things that are not, it could be entertainment, could be a whole host of things that are not really that bad, that bad. But man, they are turning down the temperature of our hearts for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And I bet one week without those things, we would say, what took me so long? What took me so long? Jesus is so much better. One of the best ways we can heal from this arrow wound is first to ask another Christ follower we trust to help us pull it out. This is called accountability. Talk to someone about your struggle and have them pray for you. That's a great first step. Just talk to somebody. Bring it out in the open. Have them pray for you. Hey, we don't need to be all weird with each other. We all have a need to repent. We all have stuff in our lives. Let's just get it out and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, right? Then have them help you bind the wound so it won't get infected. That is, let someone help you process and pray through the good desire you have and that I have that's gone wrong, okay? It could be lust that's a desire for pleasure. That's not a bad thing. You're just finding it in the wrong place. It could be self-image issues that point to a noble longing to feel like you're worth pursuing. That's a good thing that's gone wrong. Finally, let the godly friend help you cut off the enemy's supply line by building fences and obstacles around your struggle. If porn is the problem, get accountability apps or lock down the parental controls on your iPhone. Make sure every screen is locked down. If you don't, you're giving in. You're letting this arrow sink in and saying, I might as well, regardless of what you're saying with your mouth. No, the reason why you think you not have to have a, you don't need a filter, no, you're going to fall again. Build up those fences, cut off the supply line, gouge out the right eye. If the issue is self-image, have your accountability partner hold you to praying out loud the verses regarding who you are in Christ every day. And you can Google just identity in Christ and there'll be a million pages that will come up. And just pray those things out loud. But bring it out with someone else. Have someone hold you accountable to uh, uh, getting in the word every day, to talking with God for five minutes every day, starting there. So to end tonight, I, I'd like us to take a moment to pray and reflect, to write down areas that you're in need of repentance for and that you're turning from sin, turning to Christ. You're telling the Lord, I'm turning from these things that I've written down and I'm turning to you, Jesus. This is something to celebrate. This isn't a heavy thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's like throwing off a weight and being saved from drowning. It's something to celebrate.
Then write down the steps you need to take to walk away from that particular sins or sins and walk instead in the joy of obedience. So it could be, I'm gonna go to home group every week. I've been isolating myself. It could be, uh, I wanna inquire about a life transformation group from one, of the, from one of the pastors because I don't have a group of men or women that I can be accountable to. And if you already have that, just do it and enter in. If you don't, we can help you with that, with a life transformation group that meets regularly. So let's pray and write that down. And folks, let me tell you from experience, the ones that are in the most danger in here are the ones that think they don't have anything to write down. So as we write these things down, we're celebrating freedom. Write it down. Pray for the Lord to help you leave sin and walk in obedience and joy, and then write down steps that uh, you're going to be taking. So let's do that now, just uh, on your own.
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law, the spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. We're clean in Christ. The dirt of this world gets on us, and repentance is just acknowledging that we're not there yet, that Jesus has not come back, that we're not with him in the flesh yet, and that we battle with this sin nature that we read about all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and repentance is just acknowledging the finished work of Christ over and over again. I need the cross. I walk in the resurrection. I need the cross. I walk in the resurrection. It's a lifestyle. Repentance is a lifestyle, and it's, it is the key to the spiritual battle. So God bless you. Go in peace, and we'll see you guys next week.